1: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 76 of our Civil War Podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. On Tuesday, October 29, 1861, the largest fleet in American history to that time set sail from Hampton Roads, Virginia. It was an impressive collection of 17 warships with 157 guns, 25 colliers and supply ships, and 33 troop transports carrying 12,000 soldiers and 600 marines. Their destination was Port Royal Sound, South Carolina, located about 60 miles south of Charleston and 35 miles north of Savannah.
1: After the Federals seized Hatteras Inlet on the outer banks of North Carolina in August 1861, they then took control of Ship Island off the Mississippi coast, halfway between Mobile and New Orleans a month later. These two operations were the first steps taken in implementing the Blockade Board's strategic vision for strengthening and improving the Union's blockade of the Confederacy. But after those two successes, the Federals were ready to try something a bit more ambitious, and so they set their sights on another location that was high on the Blockade Board's list of potential targets, Port Royal Sound. Strategically located on the Atlantic coast between the ports of Charleston, South Carolina and Savannah, Georgia, Port Royal Sound was arguably the finest natural harbor on the southern coast and would make an ideal support base for the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron. The Blockade Board's report had described Port Royal Sound as the finest harbor south of Chesapeake Bay, which it resembles in capacity and extent. It is approached by three channels, the least of which has 17 feet of water. Several of our screw frigates of the first class can pass the bar, and when the entrance is made, a whole navy can ride at anchor in the bay in uninterrupted health and security. The entrance is over two miles wide. There is a fine anchorage under bay point. Water may be had at the station Port Royal, Land's End. Near this point may be constructed a wharf for a coaling station above the mouth of the little creek End quote. and then the report also added the information that quote, port royal is one of the wealthiest of the sea islands and is devoted to the culture of sea island cotton End quote.
0: and so it was to capture that valuable prize port royal sound that flag officer samuel f dupont led that powerful federal task force out of hampton roads on October 29th. But soon after the ship set sail, Mother Nature conspired against the expedition, and she almost scuttled the Yankees' plans before they ever reached South Carolina.
1: The Union Navy's primary task throughout the Civil War was the blockade of the Confederacy, We've mentioned before that one of the problems at the beginning of the war that made blockading difficult for the U.S. Navy was the need for steam-powered warships to take on coal at frequent intervals. Only a steam-powered warship could be an effective blockader, but since a steam-powered warship would need to make frequent trips to a Union naval base to refill its bunkers with coal, that meant it would be left with minimal time to actually cruise on station off a southern port. It was in pursuit of minimizing this problem by seizing locations that could be used as naval bases near ports it was blockading that the Navy set its sights on places like Ship Island and Port Royal Sound.
0: But like the task force that had captured Hatteras Inlet, the expedition to Port Royal was also, also wouldn't just be a Navy show. It, too, would be a joint Army-Navy effort, but on a larger scale than the Hatteras operation. The naval part of the Port Royal Expedition was under the command of Flag Officer Samuel DuPont, while the Army troops were led by Brigadier General Thomas W. Sherman.
1: Samuel Francis DuPont, known as Frank to his friends and family, was 58 years old in October 1861. His naval career had begun when he went to sea as a midshipman at the tender age of 12. He served on board a variety of ships over the next several decades frequently with the Mediterranean squadron. During the Mexican War, he commanded a sloop and landed troops at San Diego, and was officially commended for his role in subsequent actions during the blockade of California. In 1826, he had married a first cousin, Sophie DuPont, the daughter of his uncle, who had founded the famous gunpowder works in Delaware. Apparently, marrying your cousin wasn't uncommon in the 19th century. But anyway, Sophie wasn't well, and because of her lingering illness, DuPont often refused assignments that would have taken him abroad for extended periods of time. In 1845, he was selected as one of the officers to choose the site and establish the curriculum of the new Naval Academy. As an advocate of reform and modernization, in 1855 DuPont served on the Naval Efficiency Board, which weeded out many elderly and broken-down officers and so reduced the number of active naval officers by 30%, and the board also helped determine the Navy's first retirement policy. In 1855, DuPont was promoted to captain. Two years later, he was given command of the new steam frigate Minnesota, with which DuPont transported the new U.S. minister to China to his post. The Minnesota ended up visiting such ports of call as Hong Kong, Japan, India, and Arabia, before returning to America in May 1859. In 1861, when war broke out, DuPont was commandant of the Philadelphia Navy Yard. In June, he was appointed to serve as senior member on the blockade board. DuPont originally thought service on the board would involve a week of his time, but putting together the framework for how the Union Navy would first institute and then conduct its blockade of the southern ports actually became three months' work. But once the board's work was finished, DuPont, in September, became commander of the newly created South Atlantic Blockading Squadron.
0: DuPont's fellow commander on the Port Royal Expedition, Brigadier General Thomas West Sherman, was known as the Other Sherman, since he shared a surname with the more famous William Tecumseh Sherman, but the two men actually weren't related. Born in 1813 to a Rhode Island family of modest means and reputation, when Thomas West Sherman, known to his friends as Tim, sought an appointment to West Point, he walked to Washington to apply personally to President Andrew Jackson. The President granted him the appointment, and Sherman graduated 18th of 49 in the class of 1836. Upon graduation, Sherman, as a newly minted second lieutenant in the artillery, was sent right off to fight in Florida in the Second Seminole War. During the Mexican War, he served with Zachary Taylor's army in northern Mexico, earning a brevet promotion for his actions at the Battle of Buena Vista in February 1847. After the Mexican War, Sherman served on the Minnesota frontier before being stationed in the troubled territory of Kansas from 1857 to 1858. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he was a major in the 3rd U.S. Artillery. In August of 1861, Sherman was promoted to Brigadier General of Volunteers and sent to New York City to organize the Army's contribution to the Port Royal Expedition. He would eventually have about 12,000 men for the campaign. During the time Sherman was on board DuPont's flagship, the USS Wabash, the naval officer formed a favorable opinion of his Army counterpart. DuPont noted that, quote, He is more able a general than I thought. Instead of being a mere sabreur, he studies maps, has informed himself well of his work. I think we shall work harmoniously, end quote.
1: Subreur means swordsman. So as a Navy man, DuPont was saying that Sherman seemed to be a cut above your average, stupid Army officer. Exactly. So anyway, with all that went on, just putting the expedition together it's a good thing that DuPont and Sherman got along, since the awkward arrangement of rank could have been a major stumbling block for inner service cooperation. As Craig Simons explains in his book, Lincoln and His Admirals, quote, one final problem that had to be solved was rank. Once the expedition departed, DuPont would command the ships and Sherman the soldiers, but who would be in overall command of the expedition? As a Navy captain, DuPont bore the highest rank then available in the sea service, but officially a Navy captain was the equivalent of an Army colonel, and Sherman was a Brigadier General. It was Gustavus Fox who suggested the solution, and four days later, Lincoln issued an order creating the rank of Navy Flag Officer, declaring that Flag Officers of the United States Navy will rank with Major Generals of the United States Army. This made DuPont senior to Sherman, though Wells pointedly reminded him that no officer of the Army or Navy, whatsoever may be his rank, can assume any direct command, independent of consent, over an officer of the other service. Wells declared that the President expected DuPont and Sherman to display the most cordial and effectual cooperation. Winfield Scott sent nearly identical orders to Sherman. End quote.
0: Fortunately, DuPont and Sherman did, for the most part, display the most cordial and effectual cooperation that Lincoln expected. Together, the two men even managed to keep the objective of the task force a secret from journalists and Confederate spies, and even from their own subordinates. Soldiers and sailors spread rumors about the fleet's destination, but no one had any definite information on where the ships would go once they left Hampton Roads. Commander Percival Drayton of the USS Pocahontas did not know where the fleet was going and was glad for the secrecy, saying, quote, "Which, if it does nothing else, will have tended to keep our southern friends in a most unpleasant state of uncertainty." End quote. Before sailing on October 29th, DuPont gave each ship captain sealed orders naming Port Royal as the objective to be opened at sea only if the fleet became separated. As it turned out, DuPont's prudence was prophetic.
1: On November 2nd, four days after the task force had set sail, the Belvedere, one of the steamers pressed into service as a transport for the expedition, limped back into Hampton Roads with her upper works badly damaged and with 12 dead horses on board. The Belvedere's captain reported that the fleet had been off Cape Fear, North Carolina, when a terrible storm had overtaken it scattering vessels in every direction.
0: In the early morning hours of October 31st, the fleet had rounded Cape Hatteras, giving a wide berth to the dangerous shoals there, but the weather soured the next day, the 1st of November. The sky darkened, the wind rose, and rain poured down. Soon a full-blown gale burst over the fleet. At 2.30 that afternoon, the flagship, the Wabash, sent out the signal for all ships to disregard the previously prescribed order of sailing, and this freed the various captains to do what they thought best in order to survive the wild night ahead.
1: In his book, The Battle of Port Royal, Michael Coker writes, The storm swept over the fleet with a scalding fury, hurling wind, rain, thunder, lightning, and a seemingly endless succession of waves against the motley assortment of Federal ships. Isolated, swept apart by the vicious currents, the sailors fought to keep their battered ships afloat. Darkness surrounded them, their lanterns fragile pinpricks of luminescence light of a more surreal fashion was provided by the phosphorescent glow of luminous sea creatures dredged up from the depths that swirled within the sheet of foam coating the sea, Coker goes on to point out the black humor of the situation, found in the fact that the largest, most powerful naval task force ever assembled by the United States was in danger of being destroyed without ever having come to grips with the enemy.
0: For the rest of the night, the battered vessels rode out the Tempest as best they could. On board one of the ships, a reporter from the New York World wrote, quote, One moment we were on top of a wave and could distinguish the position of the vessels in the fleet by the multitude of signal lights that were swung in the rigging, and the next instant we were down in the trough of the sea, with the avalanche of waters rearing its giant walls each side of our noble craft. The rain poured down in torrents as the night closed in, and the darkness became intense, being relieved only by the lightning that broke in sheets of flame from the heavens, almost blinding our eyes and rendering the darkness more intense.
1: A soldier on one of the sturdier ships, the Atlantic, left the following account. The old Atlantic, which was considered the most staunch craft of the fleet, was tossed like an eggshell. During the day, the scene was a grand one. The waves ran mountains high. Sometimes, when upon a high wave, we could see several of the smaller crafts struggling for life with the invisible foe, with signals of distress flying that could not be answered, as no vessel could safely approach another in such a storm, lest both go to the bottom. This scene would be suddenly cut off by our noble steamer sinking below everything visible, and the walls of the sea upon either side would seem ready to fall inward and engulf us and again as suddenly we would be raised to a point overlooking the sad scene before mentioned. We were thus situated for two days and three nights, with death staring us in the face. We knew he was working fearfully near us." In his 1885 Regimental History of the 48th New York, Abraham J. Palmer said, "...the storm was as grand as it was terrible, and it scattered that noble fleet of vessels to the winds." It has often been compared to the tempest which destroyed the Spanish Armada three centuries before. The writer has twice crossed the ocean, and five times since, passed Hatteras, but never has witnessed so terrible a storm at sea.
0: Daylight on the morning of no- November second revealed nothing but an angry sky and storm-tossed waves as far as the eye could see. On the Wabash, DuPont held a glass to his eye and anxiously scanned the waters in all directions. Over 50 ships had left Hampton Roads, but in the wake of the storm, DuPont could find only one other vessel within sight of the Wabash. On the flagship, Charles H. Davis, of DuPont's staff, also surveyed the choppy waters. He later recalled, quote, The most impressive feature of the scene was the solitude. We had sailed from port with a fleet. The ocean was alive with our numbers, and now we were scattered in a storm. End quote.
2: The
1: storm finally blew itself out on Sunday, November 3rd. It was then that DuPont's detailed planning and preparation paid off, as the commanders of the scattered ships broke the wax seals on their secret orders and read that the fleet's destination was Port Royal Sound. By November 4th, the Wabash and twenty-five other ships had reached the rendezvous point outside Port Royal and more vessels were spotted straggling down the coast. Some of the ships had turned back, like the Belvedere, which carried news of the storm back to Hampton Roads. The small steamers which were to tow surf boats to land troops had also fared poorly in the tempest and had turned back. A steamer carrying 300 marines had foundered and went down, but a frigate had managed to rescue all but seven of the men.
0: But despite some setbacks, by November 5th, most of the fleet had managed to reunite off Port Royal. Unfortunately, one ship that did not make it to the rendezvous point was the Ocean Express, which had been carrying all of the Army's field guns and small arms ammunition. The loss of the surf boats and the Army's missing artillery and ammunition meant that the attack on Port Royal, for all intents and purposes, would be an all-Navy show after all. Gunfire from the ships would have to silence the enemy forts before the Union soldiers could land. A Navy lieutenant wrote on November 5th, General Sherman says in my hearing that these ships can't take the forts without cooperation with the troops. I hope we will show him differently.
1: The forts just mentioned were two Confederate works that had been established to protect Port Royal Sound. The earthen, well really they were sand forts, were positioned on each side of the two-or-so-mile-wide mouth of the Sound. Fort Walker was located to the south, on Hilton Head Island. Fort Walker mounted 23 guns and a one-gun outwork, serviced by 622 Rebel soldiers. The cannon at Fort Walker were mounted on the parapet, a measure which increased their range, but also increased their vulnerability. Across the way to the north, at Bay Point, 640 men garrisoned 20-gun Fort Beauregard and a 5-gun outwork. None of the guns at the two forts really packed enough punch or had the range to challenge the might of the U.S. Navy. An enemy squadron could maneuver between the forts and pretty much keep out of effective range of either.
0: Just before the arrival of the Federal fleet, another 1,000 Southern soldiers, along with two howitzers, were transferred into the area. The overall Confederate commander of the Port Royal defenses was Brigadier General Thomas F. Drayton of South Carolina, who just happened to be the brother of Commander Percival Drayton of the USS Pocahontas. Brother against brother is a phrase often used when describing the Civil War, but here at Port Royal Sound, it wasn't just an expression. Here the brothers Drayton actually faced off against one another. But despite the potential for a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions, both Thomas and Percival would survive the battle here at Port Royal, and both would also survive the war.
1: The Confederate Navy had even fewer resources to defend Port Royal than did the rebel army. A handful of small steamers and tugs, each armed with one or two guns, made up the Confederate naval flotilla, such as it was, at Port Royal. It was dubbed the Mosquito Fleet and was under the command of Josiah Tatnell, who four months later would become the last commanding officer of the CSS Virginia. At Port Royal on Monday, november fourth, when a few of the just arrived Federal ships were observed taking soundings off the bar, Tatnell led several ships of the Mosquito Fleet out to attack them, but the old smoothbore guns on the rebel ships were no match for the newer rifled pieces on the big enemy warships and Tatnall's little flotilla was driven off after a brief, unequal exchange of fire. The Charleston Mercury newspaper applauded the gallantry of Tatnell, but noted that, quote, The scene was as an inspiring one, but almost ludicrous, in the disparity of the size of the opposing fleets, end quote.
0: DuPont and Sherman consulted on the evening of the 4th, Many missing vessels had straggled into the rendezvous point, but some others still hadn't been heard from, including, as mentioned before, the ship with the Army's ordnance and ammunition. Nevertheless, both men agreed that time would only benefit the Confederate defenders, so it would be best to attack sooner rather than later, especially if, as appeared to be the case, gunfire from the Navy ships would have to silence the enemy forts before the Union soldiers could land. With the decision to go ahead made, some bad weather on November 6th postponed the attack. But the next day, Thursday the 7th, dawned clear and calm.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
1: For the Navy's attack on the two Confederate forts defending Port Royal Sound, DuPont adopted a tactical plan that was similar to the one Silas Stringham had used at Hatteras Inlet. As you guys will remember from episode number 70, at Hatteras Inlet, Stringham decided that the Federal ships would steam just offshore in an oval pattern, continuously pounding the enemy works while presenting a moving target to the Rebel gunners. It used to be the case that naval ships would have to sail close to an enemy coastal fort, stop and drop anchor, and then bombard the fort from a fixed position. This, of course, simply made the wooden sailing ships stationary targets, sitting ducks vulnerable to fire from the fort's guns. The old rule stated that it took four ships' cannon to equal one of a fort's guns. But some naval officers understood that steam power and modern naval cannon nullified the old rule about a coastal fort's superiority over ships. Thus you have Stringham's tactical plan at Hatteras Inlet, where he kept his ships in continual motion as a protection against the fire of the Confederate fort there, while sailing in an elliptical pattern that would hold the fort steadily under attack by the warship's guns. The British had begun to work out this tactic at Odessa in the Crimean War, but they had been made so timid by the old rule about forts versus ships that they failed to pass in front of the Russian batteries and had never actually brought the land defenses under direct fire. And so it was really here in the Civil War that U.S. Navy officers were using steam-powered warships armed with modern guns to put the new tactics to the test.
0: DuPont's plan of attack at Port Royal was designed to take full advantage of one, the large expanse of water between the two defending forts, two, the mobility of his steam-powered vessels, and three, the superior firepower of the vessels themselves. DuPont thought that Fort Walker to the south on Hilton Head Island was the stronger of the enemy works, so the operation would initially focus on its reduction. The plan called for two columns of ships to move into the Sound, The main column, made up of the nine heaviest warships, led by the Wabash, would move in line ahead formation, and as they passed the forts, they would simultaneously fire on both strongholds. Then, when they were two miles into the Sound, they would turn about and head back out of the Sound along a line taking them closer to Fort Walker, concentrating fire on that fort's weak northern side. Once they reached the mouth of the Sound, the Federal ships would turn about once more and retrace their previous path between the two forts. This pattern would be maintained until both forts were reduced. Meanwhile, the second column, made up of five lighter gunboats, would enter the Sound and protect the flank of the main column from attack by the Confederates' Mosquito Fleet.
1: At 9 a.m. on Thursday morning, General Quarters was sounded throughout the Union Fleet, and 17 minutes later, the ships were cleared for action and stood into the sound. At Fort Walker, General Drayton watched the Yankee ships approach. He later recalled, quote, The morning of the 7th of November was a still, clear, beautiful morning, not a ripple on the broad expanse of water to disturb the accuracy of fire from the broad decks of that magnificent armada advancing in battle array, end quote. Ten minutes after the Federal ships stood into the sound, the Confederate forts opened fire, answered immediately by the bow-swivel gun of the Wabash. From that point on, the warships, gliding slowly forward, maintained a tremendous and well-directed fire on the enemy works.
0: Josiah Tatnell's Mosquito Fleet fired on the leading Yankee vessels, but after that show of defiance, the small makeshift rebel flotilla was forced to withdraw and was quickly bottled up near the mouth of Skull Creek behind Hilton Head Island by the federal gunboats.
1: At 10 a.m., the Wabash turned about inside the sound and started to steam back out, but at that point, DuPont's plan began to break down. Rather than the entire column following the flagship on the outward leg of the elliptical path only one of the other warships followed. As the Wabash slowly passed within 800 yards of Fort Walker, DuPont could look behind him and see that except for the Susquehanna, the other big ships weren't following. In spite of his signal to close up and follow the Wabash, the rest of the heavy squadron stayed inside the Sound, providing enfilade fire on the enemy forts. Neither Fort Walker nor Fort Beauregard had really been designed to protect the defenders from fire coming from ships inside the sound, so the enfilade fire was devastating, dismounting guns in the forts and scattering the crews, seriously degrading the ability of the strong points to fight back against the Yankee vessels. Lieutenant Daniel Amon on one of the gunboats, the USS Seneca, said, quote, "There was deafening music in the air which came from far and near and all around." Heavy clouds of dust and smoke, due to our bursting shells and the enemy's fire, partly obscured the earthworks, while our vessels were but dimly seen through the smoke from their guns, which hung over the water, End quote.
0: And for those of y'all who are wondering, enfilade fire means that the Yankee ships were directing their fire along the length of the fort's walls, rather than simply blasting the face of the walls. If you think about it, you can see why this type of fire is so devastating. Think of a row of toy soldiers you have set up, and if you fire, say, a rubber band at them from the front, you might knock over one or two toy soldiers, but if you move around to the side and shoot down the length of the formation, you can knock down a whole bunch of them. That's enfilade fire.
1: Exactly. And so by this time, the Wabash and the Susquehanna were ready to turn about at the mouth of the Sound and head back in for their second attack. DuPont reported, quote, On our second attack, I can remember nothing in naval history that came close to this ship and terrific repetitions of her broadsides. The officers of the army, who with 14,000 men were looking on, were filled with wonder and admiration, end quote while well, the army troops watching from the transports offshore weren't the only ones impressed by the ferocity of the Wabash's broadsides. Watching from the USS Seneca inside the Sound, Lieutenant Amund said, quote, I can conceive of nothing more grand than a view of the main deck of the Wabash on this occasion. The hatches being battened down, a faint light only came through the ports, as did the flashes of the discharged guns, which recoiled violently with a heavy thud, "...as far as the smoke would permit, hundreds of men were visible in very rapid motion, loading and running out the guns with the greatest energy. Such a view, accompanied by the noise of battle, is weird and impressive to the highest degree."
0: By the end of the Wabash's second pass, Fort Walker had only three guns still operational. The Southerners, at least initially, were able to score some hits on most of the Yankee ships, causing some casualties, but the defenders were handicapped by the fact that their guns were inferior in range and accuracy, the supply of ammunition was low, and some of the ammunition that was on hand was defective. As the bombardment continued almost unceasingly, the morale of the Confederate defenders was broken, and they became increasingly unnerved. By the start of the Wabash's third leg, about 1 p.m., DuPont received a signal from the commander of the USS Ottawa that Fort Walker was being evacuated. The Wabash sailed up to within 500 yards of the battered fort and blasted it with a broadside and with both pivot guns, but there was no response from the defenders. A launch was sent ashore with a flag of truce, but the rebels had indeed fled. Shortly after 2 o'clock, the Stars and Stripes was run up the flagstaff at Fort Walker. By 4 p.m., the victorious fleet had secured from battle stations, and Army troops were coming ashore on Hilton Head Island.
1: Across the way, late that afternoon, as dusk approached, the Seneca sailed up to Fort Beauregard and found that position had also apparently been abandoned. Sailors and Marines went ashore the next morning and raised the U.S. flag over the fort, and by noon had turned the place over to army troops. A battle damage assessment revealed that nearly all of the Federal ships had sustained some hits, and six sailors had been killed and twenty wounded. Drayton's Confederates had not surrendered, but successfully withdrew to the mainland. Their casualties had been ten killed and twenty wounded. Over the next several days, the victorious Yankees rode up the nearby rivers and inlets and occupied the towns of Port Royal and Beaufort, as well as some fine old plantations located along the Sound. The Federals established a strong base for the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron at Port Royal Sound, and eventually took possession of the entire string of coastal islands from Savannah almost to Charleston.
0: In the immediate aftermath of the capture of Port Royal Sound, Sherman briefly considered sending troops inland and turning, quote, left or right to one of the cities, end quote. That is, he briefly considered mounting an operation to threaten either Savannah to the south or Charleston to the north. But although DuPont and Sherman had established a beachhead along a critical portion of the southern coastline, the Union was unprepared to follow up this initial success.
1: Yeah, so in some ways, the victory at Port Royal, while a victory for the Union, also represented a missed opportunity late in 1861 to change the character of the war. Opening another front there along the southern coastline could have been a game-changer early in the war, but it just didn't happen. That's because from the start, all the preparations for the Port Royal expedition had centered on just attacking the enemy forts and seizing the sound.
0: So although their success at Port Royal may have been a victory that wasn't fully exploited by the Federals, The attack on Port Royal did have a major impact on Robert E. Lee, who on November 8th, just one day after the battle, arrived to take command of the Confederate Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Jefferson Davis, responding to the vulnerability of the Confederacy's Atlantic coastline, had ordered Lee, fresh from his disappointing performance in western Virginia, to take charge of the region's coastal defenses. As luck would have it, though, Lee arrived in his new command just in time to learn of the Federal victory at Port Royal. Robert E. Lee immediately moved to strengthen the fortifications protecting Savannah and Charleston, but as for the rest of his department's defenses, within a short time, Lee had decided to abandon the dispersed perimeter defense of the coastline and instead concentrate the southern troops at key points along interior lines, where they could use the region's rail lines to counter the Yankees' seaborne mobility. But really, Lee knew that he simply didn't have the resources or manpower to truly counter the enemy threat. He regarded his new assignment as quote another forlorn hope expedition worse than that than West Virginia.
1: Another important immediate consequence of the capture of Port Royal was the flight of many of the area's white Confederate civilians who abandoned some of the South's most prosperous plantations and thousands of slaves. Although most of the blacks did not fall under the provision of the First Confiscation Act as contrabands. They were obviously no longer under the control of their masters, who had fled. What happened to these former Bonds people on South Carolina's Sea Islands is a fascinating story, a sometimes inspiring, sometimes tragic story, but a story that will take up next week.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is now for the contest, Coastal and Oceanic Naval Operations in the Civil War, by William H. Roberts.
1: This book uh, examines how the Civil War at sea involved three major struggles. The Union's blockade of the Confederacy, the Confederate commerce raiders that preyed upon northern shipping, and the Union's projection of power ashore along the southern coastline. And Roberts does an excellent job of explaining how both sides mobilized and employed their resources for each of those three campaigns. So that's now for the contest Coastal and Oceanic Naval Operations in the Civil War by William H. Roberts.
0: As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
1: And as we wrap things up, we wanted to give you guys a sneak preview of what will be coming up after next week's episode on the Sea Islands. Well, the same day as the Battle at Port Royal Sound, November seventh, 1861, there was also a battle that was fought out west, along the Mississippi River, at Belmont. That was actually Ulysses S. Grant's first major outing against the Confederates. So before we talk about the Battle at Belmont itself, we'll spend an episode looking at Grant's life story up to that point. And then next up will be the Trent Affair, and we'll use that as a springboard to talk about foreign relations, mostly focusing on the United States' relations with Britain and the Confederacy's relations with Britain uh, at the start of the Civil War. Now we'll most likely spend at least several episodes on that, so all of you guys who listen to the podcast from over in the UK can look forward to that.
0: And that will pretty much bring us to the end of 1861. So after that, Rich and I have been thinking we'll use an episode as a look back, as a review of that first year of the Civil War. But besides reviewing what we already talked about and putting it all in context, we'll probably also throw in a few events that happened in 1861 that are worth noting, but that we just didn't find a way to fit into a previous episode.
1: Okay, and so after that, we'll be into 1862. And there is tons, tons of good stuff to look forward to in 1862. And Tracy and I can't wait to get to it all. But everything in its time. So for right now, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We do hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.